This is WMPG. My name is Dr. Anne, and this is Safe Space, a forum for courageous conversation. Tonight's show is a part of an ongoing series about telling and writing difficult stories. My guest is Diane Morrow, and we'll be talking about writing as healing. Diane Morrow is a former physician with a longtime interest in the connections between writing and healing. After practicing family medicine, she took time off to get an MFA in writing, returning to medicine to practice mind-body medicine for another 10 years. She's taught writing in a variety of settings, including college classrooms, homeless shelters, Center for Addiction Recovery, and she's led a number of workshops and writing groups at cancer services. Diane ultimately left the practice of medicine and now teaches English at a high school in Winston-Salem, North Carolina. Welcome to Safe Space, Diane. Hello, thank you for having me. So I'd love to start with your own personal connection to this subject. One of the ways that you have written was through your your own experience of your mother having mental illness. And I wonder if you could tell me a little bit about what it was like for you to write about that. When I went away to college um, during those years, my mother in midlife um, began a very serious depression almost paralyzing depression. And because of her own history, a complicated history, her father had come back, actually from World War I. Um, back then they called it shell-shocked. It was PTSD. And my grandfather had been in a mental hospital for a lot of my mother's life, and there had been huge stigma surrounding that. Um, he had actually died in a mental hospital in his 50s. And so when my mother got into midlife, it was like this thing she'd feared her whole life. And in her 50s, it began, she began to experience depression, and it pretty much, um, because of the stigma, she was very, very reluctant to get help for a long, long time. And so she was seriously depressed for a long time, and I think I began to see writing as a way for me to hold what, what really became just such a deep sorrow for me. Writing became a way to just hold and um, deal with that feeling. Even if I wasn't dealing with it directly, writing was a way to hold it for me. So when you say that writing helped you hold it, were you writing about it and naming it, or how did, how so did it? That's the funny thing. I mean, eventually I was. Um, but in the beginning, it was more the act of writing. And I think that's the thing that sometimes gets confused in the writing and healing. Writing and healing to me is just a very huge topic, what writing can be. Like, it's very broad how writing can be healing. Sometimes writing can be healing when you write directly about the thing that's happening. But sometimes, for all kinds of reasons, you don't do that. And when I was, you know, 20, whatever I was, 21, 22, that's not what I did in the morning. I wrote about my life. You know, I wrote about the patients I was seeing. I wrote about these, you know, stories I would hear in the hospital. But in a way, as I was doing that, it was helping me hold this other thing. And that's a little hard to articulate, but I think that's what one of the things that was happening during that time. So you mentioned that writing, the, the field of writing as healing is so broad. I'd love to just explore it a little more with you directly. Mm-hmm. What are some of the ways that writing is healing? We've mentioned writing directly about, mm-hmm. and then in other ways, just having the ritual to explore your life mm-hmm. in itself. What are some of the other ways that writing is healing? Um, the picture that comes to mind when you... Um, when you asked me that question is um, when I taught, um, one of the things I ended up doing was teaching for a couple of years at Prodigal's Community here, which is a recovery center for recovering addicts. 
I learned so much there. But the thing when you ask me the question, like one other way that um, writing can be healing, is one of the things that happens when um, people who are addicted stop using, um, and it, this was new to me, I, the recovery community was new to me, but is how much emotion that they just have, and they would call them storms of emotion. So many feelings that they had dealt with, that they had medicated before, would just start coming. I'd say, you know, what would happen if you were to write about that? Like, just write about what you're feeling right now. And over time, that became kind of my tagline. People would say, oh, write about it. Write about it. <laughs> write about it. <laughs> right. But Here comes Dr. Write about it. <laughs> pretty much. <laughs> and now my students say that about me. It would make a difference. And, and the word that would often be used is, oh, I felt such a release after I did it. So whether it was writing about an act, just writing, like when you have that like stuck feeling, a heaviness usually, that feeling that you can write into the feeling as a way to hold it, and often what will happen is it will move. And once it moves, everything's, you know, that's the secret, getting that thing to move. Yes. So that's one of the ways that writing, I think that's a powerful way, like in the moment that writing can be healing. You also mentioned that you felt in addition to kind of the release of writing, you talk mm -hmm. about it as transformative. And I wonder yeah. if you could say more about how writing can be transformative. I think that if somebody writes something and somebody, and, and it doesn't have to happen in writing, it could also happen in speaking. But if somebody tells a story and it's heard and it's heard, and not just like, and, and there's a difference, and like it's really heard. That, I think, in itself can change a story, because often a story is told because it needs to be heard. Like sometimes, I don't know if you've known people that tell the same story over and over and over. Sure. And sometimes the people around them get really frustrated with hearing that same story over and over. What I always think when I hear that happening is, that person hasn't been heard yet. Now, that doesn't mean the people around them haven't been listening really carefully, but the person who's telling it didn't get that experience yet of the person going, oh, oh, sweetie, I get it. I have often found that to happen more readily in writing sometimes than in talking. So it's sort of... A paradox in writing something, you can be more heard yeah. than if you tell it. Yeah. And, and why do you think that is? During that time when I was in medical school, and during the time when I was really beginning to grasp, like, okay, my mom's just not sad, and she's going to get over it in a couple of weeks and take a class. Okay, that's not going to be. I remember I had a friend who was, oh, my mom's doing all this stuff. She's in midlife, and I, oh, maybe my mom will do that. No, that's not the story my mom was going to have. You know. So when I began to grasp, like, okay, this is a deal. I began to need a place to, like, tell that story. Because I was a, a bit, you know, carrying on a bit of the family stigma, I did not tell my friends about it, um, almost exclusively. There was one friend who I ended up telling. I did try to tell a therapist. I actually twice during medical school tried to tell a therapist. And, but for whatever reason, when I told the story, I didn't feel that. The words I, I sometimes think of as resonance, I didn't feel, and I think I didn't feel a resonance, and I don't necessarily think, looking back, that there was anything wrong with her as a therapist, but I also think, for me, where I was then, I couldn't articulate in language, in spoken language, the feeling that I had well enough yet to get the response I wanted. When I wrote the story, 
So I ended up doing, I actually did end up, you know, I told you I wrote about other things, but I also ended up eventually writing about my mom. And I actually ended up taking two fiction courses during medical school, which were some of my memorable and best experiences I had during medical school. And in both those places, and I loved going to my fiction workshops, those experiences, I got that feeling that I was looking for. And I don't know, I got that resonance in fiction workshops that I hadn't at that time in my life been able to make that connection with the therapist. So for me, writing became a way to maybe go deeper, go more into the imagery of it. And it's so interesting because you're talking about fiction, so we're not talking about you trying to share your your personal experience with your mother now. We're talking about a story that you were creating. Well, yeah, yes, you're correct. I hear the yes and no in your voice, though. (laughs) Was the story in some way weaving in your experience? Yeah, Yeah. I think a couple times, it's a little hard for me to remember which stories I wrote during that time, and some had nothing to do with my mother, but one was very, pretty much, Mm -hmm. pretty much about it. Well, you know, it's interesting, Diane, because as you know, I work as a therapist, and one of the things that so often comes up is somebody has a very difficult story to tell. Mm -hmm. They want to tell, say, a parent about something very painful that happened to them that maybe the parent was part of. Mm-hmm. And they don't know how to, they're longing yeah. for that resonance. They're yeah. longing to be heard, yeah. for the story to be received. And they want so badly to know how to do that. Like, how can they tell the story yeah. in order to maximize the chance yeah. that they'll be heard? And so often this comes up, should I write it as a letter? Yeah. Or should I try to tell her? And what do you think would be better? And so this question is really relevant, I think, concretely in people's lives all the time. How is the best way to express something very painful so that it can be received? And it's interesting because it seems to me that it affects both the the reader and the writer. You know, that some of that, some of the answer to that, and I'd like to hear you, you know, I hear you saying that it was easier for you to express yourself as a writer. But I wonder if you'd comment, too about what it's like for the listener or the reader and whether it's easier to be told or to read. See, um, when I'm talking about being heard, I'm talking about being heard by people who are neutral toward it. Like in a workshop. Right, it's very different than being the parent. Yeah, in a workshop, and, and I actually think that's one of the reasons workshops work is because they're hearing it as a story and no one in the room is hurt by that story. For the most part, People are hearing it as a story, and so they have this sort of ability to honor it as a story, which I think is part of the beauty of it. When you talk about, like, telling someone something that they that you need to tell them, then I think that's so much more difficult, really, especially when it's a hard thing to tell. And I think that, and I'm, I'm guessing this is the answer you've probably come to when you're talking to people, I think that it depends on so many factors. And that the person has to end up sort of picturing it and figuring out what works best in that situation. I I do want to throw in here, though, because I think this is so important in those situations because I know about that longing to tell. Oh, my gosh, you know, that longing to be heard. Um, And I've dealt with that as a person and then also with lots of people who I've seen. Sometimes what we have to give up, and I know I had to give it up, is being heard by one particular person. Like... um, I think it's always worth shooting for resonance from the person we long to hear it from. Mm -hmm. Um, Like, say, a family. Usually it's a family member and usually it's a parent. 
there's usually a longing to be heard by a family member about a certain issue. And I think it's always worth a shot. You know, usually it's worth multiple shots. So often, <laughs> <laughs> so often I think, eh, try the telling, try the letter, try the fiction, try the book, then see what happens. <laughs> you know, try them all. Go ahead. Go for it. But then realizing that one can also get that resonance from someone else. But sometimes what the person longs for is to be heard by the person who they feel may have um, done some harm or may have been involved in that harm, may have been a witness. If that's the case, sometimes what, what a person, I think, has to let go of is that that person will be the best listener because sometimes that person cannot hear that story. That is an unbearable story for that person, and sometimes one has to go to a person who finds it a bearable story. Um, that's such a great way to put it. It helps It helps me, just hearing you say it that way, have com- more compassion for the one who can't hear. Yeah, that's taken me a while. <laughs> <laughs> and I would, I would say I get their days, and some days not so much. That's right. This is WMPG. My name is Dr. Anne, and I'm talking to Diane Morrow about writing is healing. So you also talk a little bit about what you describe as story changers and about moments in which the way you've been thinking about a problem starts to shift. And I'd love to hear you say more about what a story changer is and why that's important. So to me, it's like that's the part when you asked about um, how is writing transformative as well as just release. So I think that like we often think of writing as I've got this thing that that's either a secret or a difficult experience, and if I write about it, then I'll be freed from it. And I think that is a, that's definitely like a role that writing can play. But I think that the, another role that writing can play, but another role that writing can play is that it can take whatever that thing is or whatever the multiple things are. We live under certain stories. We, we have certain stories that we live by. There's an educational term called schema for the way we sort things inside our heads and the way we keep long-term memory. I always think of it as like we have, you know, a certain shelf that we have this sort of cataloging system in our long-term memory of how we, you know, think about things. As a negative example of schema, like racism, like if we think about certain races in certain exaggerated negative ways, we have schema, or homophobia could be a schema that someone could have, and then they could meet someone and I think this often happens to people, you know, people who were thought in certain ways about people who were gay, and then their child, they discover that their child is gay. Some people don't change their schemas in response to that, and they, it's a tragedy. And then some people go, oh, oh, I didn't know. Oh, I had no idea. And their whole story of the way they see the world begins to change. That, to me, seems like a profound way of someone changing it. Um, and then I think there are smaller and different ways. I guess the best way um, or the easiest way for me to talk about that might be to talk about um, an example of a story changer for me, which is um, a book that I read. The book is called The Wounded Storyteller. It's by Arthur Frank, who's a sociologist at the University of Calgary. And as I was reading it, I had this sense that he was literally changing stories inside my head, like changing the way that I thought about patient stories and about healing and about medicine, I think it's often that little something where we feel that, where we go, oh, oh. The story that you're telling yourself about a thing starts to shift. The way I thought things were, the way I thought the world was, okay, 
I'm getting a new piece of information that's shifting the way I thought the world was. And this, when I'm talking about um, his way is he was changing my way of thinking about stories patients tell me and how um, and why some stories maybe seem to cause less pain than other stories do. I think that was what, I think that was the insight I had when I read Arthur Frank. I thought, I understood in a way why some stories are more painful than other stories. Tell me what you mean. It needs to be a bearable story. Stories have to be bearable. If you're relapsed and if your prognosis is grave, then you're like, I lost. I have a bad story now because I didn't get to go to where I was. I'm not out there at the park with my grandchildren. So I have a bad story. The most painful story is the chaos story, which is the story where um, often it's a very inarticulate, confused, muddled, hard-to-hear story. Um, He uses the example in his book of a woman whose mother has Alzheimer's. The story the woman tells is being in the kitchen and trying to cook dinner, and, and her mother's interrupting her, and then she's trying to talk to her mother, and then her mother feels bad, and it's just told in this, it's not framed yet, it's just pain. Um, It's just in the middle of it. This is hard. I don't know what it means. It doesn't have any meaning. It's just awful. Right. There's no redemption. There's no redemption in that story. His other insight, and I think, you know, this would very much follow, I think, on Kubler-Ross's work, which is his thing is that that chaos narrative, that one of the responsibilities, and he says of, of healthcare people, but I think of all of us, is to listen to that chaos narrative even when it's hard to hear, because it's the hardest narrative to hear. Mm-hmm. And he, again, I think Kubler-Ross had the same insight, which is you can't try to push someone into another narrative, which is what we do all the time. The Quest narrative believes that when you, and he uses illness, but I would say problem as well, the Quest narrative believes that there's something to be gotten from this, that there's something to be used, that there's something, that there's meaning, and it finds some meaning. The postmodern quest narrative, the boon of the narrative, and boon is Joseph Campbell's word um, from that whole hero's journey kind of thing, that the boon that he talks about of an illness narrative is often compassion. And that to me, I mean right there, that to me, like I can feel it right now in my body, that to me is a story changer. And is that compassion for yourself in a new way? Is that compassion for everyone involved? All of that, I think. Uh Uh-huh. I think all of that, compassion for one's own body, compassion for one's own experience and history, and then in turn, I just think it it follows, it just follows organically. If you have that compassion and experience, that compassion for your own body and experience, it just, you look at other people differently. It also strikes me that if one tells a story with compassion, Mm -hmm. it's more bearable for the listener to hear it. Yeah, yeah. And and that actually, Nasty, that's excellent, because here's the thing is, sometimes what I think a person can do is they can work through the chaos in writing, because the truth is, it's hard to find listeners for a chaos. And you know, I, I remember this so clearly when I was working at Prodigals, is a, a, a gentleman in my writing group, and I loved those writing groups I had there, but he said, um, why do you want to write? Why don't you just sit on a bench and talk with somebody? said, well, I said, that's a great question. I said, if you can always find that person who 
who will listen to you in the way you want to be listened to, you may never need to write. But I said, for most of us, and for me, like, people go on vacation. (laughs) (laughs) They get sick. They get tired of listening to me. (laughs) They... Right. So it's almost like the page, the empty page, becomes the receiver, the listener. It's so reliable. It's enormously... It never goes on vacation. And it's much cheaper than a therapist. It's so much cheaper than a therapist. (laughs) That's so right. Right. So, Diane, you work now as an English teacher, and... um, I'm interested, you know, you come from a background as a doctor and you have this really powerful perspective about writing as healing. How does that influence your teaching of these high school students? One of the connections from now is this thing we were just talking about, how that page is always available, that blank page. We write every day in class. So I I set um, what I think of as a container. The first 10 minutes of class, we write silently every day. It's pretty much a given in like all my classes. And, and, and what, I, what I feel like I'm doing or what I'm trying to do with both that 10 minutes, and they write in their day books during that 10 minutes, is I'm trying to provide that habit or at least expose them to that habit with the thought that a number of them, and a number of them will, will realize that, wow, this is a pretty cool habit. This is a really powerful habit. And I'd love to hear a story or an example of how a student has responded to this invitation to write and to write in some ways in a very personal way? What I like to do is create a space and then see what happens. I'm always surprised by how deeply and powerfully people will sometimes go when they're given that avenue. Um, And in one particular semester, um, a lot of the young women in the class, and I think it started because one of the young women started writing about her mother and read it aloud. And she was writing about her mother and, and wrote, some hard things about her mother, some difficulties she was having with her mother. When she did that, it like changed something in the room. Her sharing that changed what people thought was possible in that room, and they thought, I could do that too. I'd actually like to read one of the things that another young woman said. It was the first piece where she felt she was beginning to see growth and change in herself in the semester. Some of the people that I am close to and who I feel like I've known my whole life think I am a good person, but fail to understand why I feel this way, like I don't belong. I'm silent about many personal aspects, and I'm reading excerpts. I am silent about many personal aspects of my life because I'm afraid that I may make myself vulnerable and people could potentially see my weaknesses. Even my closest friends have barely scratched the surface of my life and the true person I am. The book that I read this semester made me feel as though I was no longer alone. Opening up is the most integral thing for me to do right now. I have to learn to leave my comfort zone. I know to most of you this may be an anonymous paper. Hearing the words come out of Ms. Smarrow's mouth and knowing that they are said make me feel like an overwhelming burden has been lifted off my shoulders. I imagine for you as her teacher that you felt great joy in reading that. And I do. And I, I feel like it's like, I think our society, even though we sort of think we're really open, we often don't provide enough spaces for people to just really kind of be honest sometimes. Um, one of the words that my students will use sometimes when, for whatever reason, either when in conversation or in writing, somebody goes kind of deep and the room goes kind of deep, which will just happen periodically. They're like these blessed moments that happen. 
one of the students, I remember a young man, he's very thoughtful, saying once, he said, you know, I'm looking around this room and I'm realizing we all wear these masks. And sometimes we kind of slip, you know, out what's behind them. And so although I, I really understand and respect the need for adolescents to have masks, and I think they're very important, I think there's also this wonderful grace in there being these moments, at least, when adolescents see behind the mask of another adolescent and go, oh, I'm not alone. Oh, it's not just me. Oh, I have company. Okay, I'm probably okay. This is probably kind of normal. I want to ask you about is your own future directions, because you've you've made this really courageous choice to leave the practice of medicine with all the things that support that, you know, the financial benefits, mm-hmm. the societal, you know, privilege benefits and so on, to become an English teacher. And I know that you have a project where you're going to be writing a book about uh, writing for a year with different chapters. And um, I was really excited on your website, you invite participation from mm-hmm. readers about it and I just wanted to direct people to that. I wondered if you could give the website for that project. Yes, I could. Um, OneYearOfWritingAndHealing.com and then the other website is WritingAndHealing.org So I built this website and the first year is like a month-by-month process that I invite people to go through and the first month is like creating a healing place um, in your life and exploring that in writing and then I go through a series of, of different topics. Um, you know, I'm going to ask you about one of them, Diane, because it really interests me. What, month nine in the okay. year says two steps forward, one step back, <laughs> dealing with resistance. Yes. And I'd love to ask you if you would tell me an exper- personal experience of that, of a time when you were trying to write something difficult or personal mm-hmm. and kind of what were the demons in your head that you had to struggle with? To, to be able to put it on paper? What were those inner voices that were kind of, you know, pulling you back from being honest? I think there are probably two voices. One is the voice that I think, well, I'll probably, I think I just inherited and will always carry and will always have to deal with is don't tell. I think there's always going to be a voice in me that says you shouldn't tell things. And how come? Don't tell because why? I think in my own history, um, because of my own family history, the idea that um, things that are, um, you know, it's almost like a cycle. Things that are difficult, maybe you shouldn't talk about, and then they become secrets, and then they become more difficult, and then you really shouldn't talk about them. Mm-hmm. So I think there's always going to be, for me, a voice that says, don't talk about it. Mm-hmm. And I think there are a lot of voices. I, I think we live in a real paradoxical time, I think. People, you know, think, oh, everybody goes on Oprah and spills their guts. Yes and no. I mean, I think that's sort of the myth of America, is that we're very, very open, um, you know, maybe compared to other cultures. And I think at some level that's true, but I think there's an enormous amount of voices in our culture that say, it's time to move forward, enough of that, enough of that chaotic narrative. So I think for me personally, there will always be voices that say, hey, who wants to hear that? And what's the second? The one for me that's been very powerful, and I think I've only more recently come to terms with, is I am not good at getting rejected Mm. um, in terms of publication. I don't know that anybody is. I do not love it. And I have had (laughs) some experiences where I came close to getting, um, when I was in my writing program, I um, wrote a novel for my thesis. 
it didn't sell. That was very, very hard for me. You know, at the time, what I thought was, I want to be what my teachers are. I want to be a novelist. You know, that's what I want to do. That's what writers do. A real successful writer has a novel. What, what I'm hearing you say is that that second kind of silencing voice is one that tells you there's one right way to be, one yes. good way to do this. And if you're not going to do that, then you're a failure, then you're bad, yes. then you shouldn't try. Diane, we're going to have to stop. So I want to just end with a po- asking you to read a poem. You have a section in your website of healing poems that are just treasures. And I wonder if you could... Uh, end this conversation sharing a poem with me that has been a source of healing and a healing poem for you. I'd be happy to. So the poem is called The Guest House, and it's by Rumi. It's translated by Coleman Parks. This being human is a guest house. Every morning, a new arrival, a joy, a depression, a meanness, some momentary awareness comes as an unexpected visitor. Welcome and entertain them all. Even if they are a crowd of sorrows who violently sweep your house empty of its furniture, still, treat each guest honorably. He may be clearing you out for some new delight. The dark thought, the shame, the malice. Keep them at the door laughing and invite them in. Be grateful for whatever comes because each has been sent as a guide from beyond. Diane Morrow, thank you so much for sharing that. It clearly sounds to me as if writing is your form of hospitality to the guests of your own Uh feelings. Thank you so much. That's a beautiful image. Thank you. I'll I'll carry that one with me. And thank you very much for having me. I appreciate it so much. This is WMPG. My name is Dr. Anne, and this is Safe Space. I've been talking to Diane Morrow about writing is healing. And if you'd like to learn more about Diane's work, you can go to writingandhealing.org to connect with her. Coming up next week will be another interview on this ongoing series about telling and writing difficult stories. And following this show, we'll be covering the bases with Thaddeus.